Welcome back to the channel, everybody. Today we are answering questions from our listeners and our viewers again. And uh, this time, these are all AFCI and GFCI related questions. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, here in Spokane, Washington. In years past, I've served as an electrical inspector for the state. Currently, I teach continuing education classes, and I answer questions related to the code. So our first question that is asked, that was submitted, is asked by Timothy B. And here it is. What is the difference between a GFCI and an AFCI? I saw on a website that they just measured different amounts of leakage current. Well, uh, there's a big difference between those two devices. And uh, I, I believe I know the website that you're talking about. It's by a well-published electrical engineer, former master electrician. And for the most part, his stuff is pretty good. But this area really does not seem to be his specialty. In his top 10, Article 210 summary, he states, the purpose of an AFCI, 30 milliamps, is to protect equipment and the purpose of a GFCI, four to six milliamps, is to protect people. Well, this really misses the mark. And unfortunately, this is a, an often vis visited website. And it's one of the things that contributes to misinformation about electronic circuit protection and the devices that we rely on to provide that. So let's start at the beginning. And I'm going to use our electrical code as a reference. My quotations are out of the 2020 NEC which most states have adopted at this time. But uh, here we have definitions for both GFCIs and AFCIs, uh, as well as some additional text that helps us to sort this out. So we'll start off with a GFCI, Ground Fault Circuit Interrupter. Article 100 definitions tells us that a ground fault circuit interrupter is a device intended for the protection of personnel that functions to de-energize a circuit or portion thereof within an established period of time when a ground fault current exceeds the values established for a class A device. Okay, so it detects leakage current. And then there's an informational note. And the informational note reads, a class A ground fault circuit interrupter will trip when the ground fault current level is six milliamps or higher and does not trip when the ground fault current is less than four milliamps. For further information, we can look at UL 943, and that is a standard for ground fault circuit interrupters. On the other hand, same article, Article 100, arc fault circuit interrupters, AFCIs, there we see this definition. A device intended to provide protection from the effects of arc faults. By doing what? Not by looking for leakage current. By recognizing Characteristics unique to arcing? Well, how would we do that? We'd have to look at the current waveform. And by functioning to energize, de-energize the circuit when an arc fault is detected. And then the NEC handbook also gives further information. So the NEC handbook is an additional um, 
is a publication that's published in addition to the National Electrical Code, and usually the authors of the handbook are also code panel members. So you're getting this from the horse's mouth. So here's what they state about AFCIs. AFCIs are evaluated in accordance with UL 1699, a different standard. Standard for arc fault circuit interrupters. Using test methods that create or simulate arcing conditions to determine a product's ability to detect and interrupt arcing faults. AFCIs are also tested to verify that an arc detection is not inhibited by the presence of loads and circuit characteristics that mask hazardous arcing conditions. In addition, these devices are evaluated to determine resistance to unwanted tripping due to the presence of arcing that occurs in equipment under normal operating conditions. Uh, that's kind of interesting because we, we know that arcing occurs normally as well, right? You might have a, a snap switch and as you're making and breaking the circuit, there's arcing that goes on inside of the snap switch or perhaps you've got the power head of a, uh, a Hoover vacuum cleaner, right? And that power head uses a universal motor. It has brushes, it creates arcs. So that's a normal loading condition. So the equipment is tested for those normal loading conditions that closely mimics an arcing fault. And then it gives a few other examples, solid state electronic ballasts or dimmed loads. And initially when AFCIs came out, we did have some problems with nuisance tripping on those devices. But um, we've, we've had a good amount of experience with them now. And uh, if you do find a piece of equipment that produces a, a nuisance trip, then every manufacturer on their website has a way to report that piece of equipment to make the best iteration possible, uh, to add that to the list of things that need to be looked at. So the next question comes from Joe Hamilton, and he asks, does the term combination GFCI mean that it is both a GFCI and AFCI breaker in one? And the answer is no. Uh, the breaker that performs both AFCI and GFC functions in one unit is properly called a dual function circuit breaker. The term combination refers to the types of arcs that an AFCI is able to detect, namely either a series or a parallel arc. So let's start there. What is an arcing fault? What are we trying to detect? Well, in some cases, arcs are intentional. Right? An arc welder welds by creating a hotspot using an arc. Uh, I mentioned before, you might have a snap switch or a set of contacts that make and break, and there's going to be an arc. That's, that's just you know, part of the, the way the circuit works. But we could also have unintentional arcs, such as when a tree falls on a power line during a storm. And, you, know, you get an electric discharge and it starts a fire. That's unintentional, it's unwanted. So an arc fault, is an unintended arc created by current flowing through an unplanned path. And you might say, well, won't a normal circuit breaker catch that? And in many cases, they are too slow at doing that. Arcing creates high intensity heating. Um, the intensity is such that uh, you have burning particles and those ignite other surrounding material, wood framing, insulation, other things. Uh, when, when we have an arcing fault and a metal is involved, those temperatures can easily exceed 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 5,500 degrees Celsius. 
So a series arc is one that occurs in a line when the contact is poor or the conductor breaks and makes intermittent contact. A parallel arc is between conductors of the circuit such as the hot and the neutral, or the hot and the ground. That's a parallel arc. Now where these are at a level of current that would not open a regular circuit breaker, the electronics of the AFCI are designed to detect the arcing signature. Right? It looks at the current waveform and opens up the circuit before it releases enough energy for a fire to arise. So then we might also ask this question. It's a question that I'm asking on behalf of our, our viewers and listeners. Where are AFCI protected circuits required in the code? And I'll answer from the perspective, again, of the 2020 NEC. I realize that not all states enforce the AFCI rules to this particular code. And in some cases, there are states that adopt the latest code, such as the 2020. But then um, various industry efforts are made to pull sections of the code back out. And sometimes the arc fault rules are those that they've pulled out. Several states have adopted the 2020 code, but when you look at the arc fault rules, They've basically gone to what we had in 2008 or prior. Okay, so what does our current code say about the installation of arc fault breakers? In 210.12 is where we find the reference. And there it says, arc fault circuit interrupter protection shall be provided as required in 210.12 A, B, C, and D. Okay, so A, by the way, is for dwelling units. The arc fault circuit interrupter in all four of these has to be installed at a readily accessible location. So generally that means we're going to put a breaker in the panel, but where we can't, if we have to use a device, that device has to be readily accessible. Part A, dwelling units. All 120 volt, single phase, 15 and 20 ampere branch circuits that supply outlets or devices installed in, and then there's a long list. So I'll read you the list, but then we'll see what it leaves out. Installed in dwelling unit kitchens, family rooms, dining rooms, living rooms, parlors, libraries, dens, bedrooms, sunrooms, recreation rooms, closets, hallways, laundry areas, or similar rooms or areas shall be protected by one of the means described in 210.12a1 through 6. We'll get to those in a second. Uh, so what did it leave out? Well, in a dwelling unit, it left out unfinished spaces, garage, and the bathroom. <laughs> right. uh, those also have GFCI protection, so maybe they're not so worried about those, uh, those three individual areas. But everything else requires AFCI protection. So there are six methods that it lists in our codebook as being able to provide AFCI protection either at the initial um, installation or perhaps down the road if something needs to change. And uh, really there's only a couple that are practical. Uh, a few of these were things that looked good on paper and were in the design stages, but some of the items in numbers one through six didn't make it to market. So the one that is most common, of course, is number one, and that's a listed combination type arc fault circuit interrupter installed to provide protection of the entire branch circuit. And that would be at the panel board. The term combination type is included here. It didn't always state a combination type. When we first 
got our first glimpse at Arcfall Breakers. That was in the 1999 code. There it just listed the requirement for us to provide arc fault circuit interrupter protection for the receptacle outlets in a bedroom starting January 1st, 2002. Then when the 2002 code came out, it dropped one word out of that phrase, the word receptacle. And so we were to protect all outlets, which includes the lighting outlets inside of the bedrooms. And then as the technology progressed, it went from just a circuit breaker that could kind of keep tabs on the branch circuit to one that was able to detect both series and parallel arcing faults and also was set at a low enough threshold so that it would be able to detect problems in additional wiring, cord and plug connected equipment that was plugged in downstream. And when that technology came about, then the listed combination type arc fault circuit interrupter rule, the way that it's written now, was introduced to our codebook. And over time, more and more spaces were added to it. So currently, it's essentially the entire home, except for the bathroom, the unfinished spaces, and the garage. So that's item number one. Item number five is also something that's possible, and quite often this is useful if we have a panel board that doesn't readily accept an arc fault breaker. It says, if a metal raceway, metal wireway, metal auxiliary gutter, or type MC cable or AC cable that meets the requirements of 250.118. In other words, it meets the requirements of providing an equipment grounding conductor with it. Uh, with metal boxes, metal conduit bodies, and metal enclosures are installed for the portion of the branch circuit between the branch circuit overcurrent device, right? And the old breaker will do here, and the first outlet. So if that's all metallic in between, then we're permitted to put a listed outlet branch type AFCI as a receptacle at the first outlet, which can then provide protection for, likely we're wiring in Romex from then on, for the remainder of the circuit. And in other than dwelling units, AFCI protection has to be provided in dormitories, where it doesn't exempt the bathroom, <laughs> as well as suites of hotels and motels, and the sleeping room of nursing homes and limited care facilities. So that's items B, C, and D. Which brings up the topic of modifications. And there we've got another submitted question. Let me find it briefly. There it is. Jesus G asks, or states rather, it's not in the form of a question, our inspector makes us upgrade to an AFCI when we replace an outlet, even if nothing in the circuit has changed. What happened to the like-for-like like rule? Okay. <laughs> so in many jurisdictions, like-for-like like replacement is considered routine maintenance and may not even require a permit. Again, you need to verify what your local jurisdiction requires for those kinds of maintenance items. However, replacement receptacles do have specific wording in the code. And when you take a look at receptacles, Article 406, 406.4D is where you find replacement rules. So D3 and D4 are the ones that would apply here. And they require replacement receptacles to comply with current code, meaning that if the current code requires a GFCI at that spot, we have to provide it. If the current code requires an AFCI protection for that particular location, we have to provide it. And we've got a choice of how we wish to do it, right? 
because we're only replacing perhaps the one receptacle, we can replace that one location with either GFCI or AFCI, whatever is needed. But that's not always the easiest solution. We might also just put a breaker inside of the panel that gives it the right protection. And again, that's not always the easiest solution. Yeah, but where that's available, we'll, we'll be able to do that. You'll notice, for example, that between 210.8 GFCI protection and 210.12 AFCI protection, you're going to find a number of circuits that require both, such as the small appliance circuits in the kitchen. That leads nicely into this other question that we have. And it's by Nick. Nick H. who asks, I am told that if I don't use a breaker with both AFCI and GFCI, that the AFCI and GFCI in the circuit will interfere with each other. Okay, so um, what Nick is saying here is, if I put an AFCI in the panel as a breaker, and then a GFCI in the first outlet, I'm told that that's going to cause a problem. And the short answer is no. Those two devices are looking for very different things in the circuit, different problems. Now, it may be that a fault triggers both at the same time and that you're going to have to reset them individually. But the function of one does not interfere with the function of the other. If you have an arcing fault between, say, the hot and ground, it's likely that both devices are going to trip. That's not a malfunction. That is, the GFCI tripping on ground fault, which had occurred, and it's the arc fault breaker tripping on the fact that you had an arcing going, occurring and had an arcing signature in the current sine wave. And so, yes, you'll have to reset both. But they don't interfere with each other. All right. Next question. Dr. Fasthammer. <laughs> yeah. Once had a general contract, contractor named that. Things didn't go well. He, he, was, uh, he was fast, but not great. So hopefully that's not the case with you. Dr. Fasthammer asks, can you successfully use an arc fault breaker on a shared neutral circuit? I have not found a good way to do it. Oh, okay. So the answer is, it depends. Um, first of all, most of the original styles of GFCI also sorry, most of the original styles of arc fault breakers also monitored the neutral. So then in a ground fault, they would also trip out, but it was a much higher elevated setting than a standard GFCI. Uh, the reason it monitored the neutral in the breaker was to ensure that the circuit was wired cleanly. In other words, if a single pole AFCI is used on a shared neutral, it will trip the breaker because some of the neutral current comes from the supply of another circuit. Uh, the same thing happens if someone ties the neutral of two branch circuits, different circuits together in, say, a switch box downstream. Now, that isn't nuisance tripping. Your arc fault breaker will trip. It's not nuisance tripping. That is a nuisance apprentice. It's just sloppy wiring. Right? You don't tie the hots of the two circuits together elsewhere. Why would you tie the neutrals of the two circuits together elsewhere? Uh, by the way, a regular breaker would not see this. But either a GFCI or an AFCI will give you grief here if you mess with having a clean return path back. Now, many manufacturers make two-pole AFCIs, GFCIs, and dual-function circuit breakers. They're not inexpensive. 
Now, it's a supply and demand thing here. But most manufacturers do make them. In that case, you get two hots and a common neutral. And those will work for the application that you need here. If you have an existing house with a shared neutral, we used to do that in kitchens all the time. Those will work. And in the last number of years, some brands have gone away from monitoring the neutral at all and employ a different sensing strategy. So for example, General Electric's THQL line of breakers, they have to be mod three. So THQL mod three AFCIs, they can be used with a shared neutral. They're individual single pole breakers and you connect them together with a tie bar and the neutral just goes to one breaker or the other. And those, those work. That's a, a particular feature of that particular brand. Now they do have to be mod three and the way to identify a mod three breaker with General Electric is that they have a gray breaker housing and a black test button. Okay, so gray housing, black test button. On the side, it's also gonna say mod three, but that's the easy way to identify them. Now, in case you're hitting a bit of information overload here, don't worry, I'll put all the links in the show notes, or if you're watching this in the video version, it will be in the description below. Now, at this point, you know, if you listened to the last one, I said, I'm saving all of the AFCI and GFCI questions for a separate episode. And that's because there's, there's a lot of information here. Uh, we've got two more questions that we're going to answer today. So next one is from Joe. Joe 68 asks, do I need to upgrade to AFCI breakers when I do a service change? Well, from the NEC's perspective, the answer is no. But you want to check with your local jurisdiction. Right. The NEC specifically tried to address this particular problem, this particular issue, by giving us an exception to 210.12. Underneath 210.12d, it states, exception. Now you got to find it. <laughs> Exceptions, AFCI protection shall not be required where the extension of the existing branch circuit conductors is not more than six feet and does not include any additional outlets or devices other than splicing devices. This measurement shall not include the conductors inside an enclosure, cabinet, or junction box. Now, just the last part of that really indicates what is it that they were trying to get at here. They were trying to help us out if we had a service change and perhaps the conductors weren't quite long enough to make it to the breaker. Or perhaps we even had to slightly move our panel a little bit, um, maybe put a junction box at the old panel location and then you know, maybe a stud space over we had the, the new panel because the conductors perhaps weren't long enough to reach the breakers. And so that's a, a very generous provision, six feet. And it can only be used on that end, you know, we're, we're swapping out the panel. Uh, you can't use it to say, well, I'm, I'm going to extend a circuit out by six feet. If it's less than six feet, I can throw another receptacle on it. That's not how it works. So this one is for doing panel changes, whether it's a service panel or a feeder panel, doesn't matter. If you're not otherwise modifying the circuit, you're good to go without upgrading to an arc fault breaker. That brings us to the last question. Here it is. This one's from Jared. He says, what is the purpose of a faceless GFCI? Okay, good question. Because it's very specialized. 
what Jared is referring to here is a GFCI device that fits in a single gang box and has a line and a load side to the device, but no receptacle outlets on the face. The only thing that's on the face is a test and reset button. So some of the places that I found it useful is where we need to provide GFCI protection for the circuit. Right? So the test and reset needs to be readily accessible, but perhaps that circuit may have no other outlets. A couple of things come to mind. One is a jetted tub. Usually the motor is cord and plug connected behind or underneath the cowling of the tub, but the GFCI needs to be readily accessible. Before the readily accessible rule came in, we just placed the GFCI right in the, you know, right underneath the cowling, but it now needs to be readily accessible. So it's true, you could do that as a breaker in the panel, of course, but if it trips, you may not want to go out there dripping wet, right? So faceless GFCI in the same bathroom that contains the, the tub, uh, that's an easy, uh, easy way to make that accessible. Very practical. Uh, the same thing might be useful for a garage door opener, which needs to be GFCI'd, but of course, if we were to stick it up in the ceiling, that outlet is more than six foot seven above grade. Thus wouldn't be readily accessible. Um, I've also used it on occasion where the circuit needed to be GFCI protected, but the ancient style of panel board just didn't permit an easy way to put a, a breaker in that spot. So mounting a J box beside the panel with a faceless GFCI and a four square raised cover, well, that gave an, an easy solution to that particular problem. Okay, well, for now, that is a wrap up on our AFCI and GFCI questions. And I'm sure that more will trickle in and we might need a part two to this. But in the meantime, please continue to submit your questions and we'll answer those in next month's episode. And I think from the ones that have already received, next month's episode will be focused on low voltage limited energy questions but feel free to submit any that you have. If you don't know where or how to submit the questions, just follow the link in the show notes, or you can go to inw-training.com and find the submit question button right on the front of our website. Until then, take care, be kind, stay safe. We'll see you next time.